X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It is Thursday, May 28th. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. I want to give a shout out to OG1, nominated for Best DJ. You can hear OG1 show in these streets on X-Ray FM on Saturday nights from 10 p.m. to midnight. You can also vote for him, Best of Portland, in that Willamette Week reader poll. You can also vote for us for Best Radio Station. And all you got to do is go to xray.fm and find the link or go to bit.ly slash xrayfm2020. Tomorrow is our next house show. Join at 7 p.m. Pacific time for a show with Lou Selena Mendoza of E La Bamba and Ryan Oxford. You can check it out at X-Ray FM. You can watch it at YouTube, on your Facebooks. Today, back in the day, May 28, 1926, the Burnside Bridge opened. Our friends over at the podcast Kick-Ass Oregon History have an episode all about the Burnside Bridge launching today. And a May happening back in the day. May of 1858, Oregon's oldest and most prominent Jewish reform congregation had its first meeting. There were eight people there. By 1887, Congregation Beth Israel saw the need to expand and two years later moved into a new synagogue at 12th and Southwest Maine. The 165-foot copper and gilt towers in the new synagogue became Portland landmarks. The sanctuary could seat 750 people and was the largest religious space in the city. Rabbi Emanuel Rose, a Portland legend and strong advocate for social justice, had the longest tenure, serving from 1960 to 2006. Much love to Manny Rose. Today on The Local, your quick six, a focus on Geneva's sheer perfection with DJ Ambush and Con Jones and why it mattered so much to this community, and an interview with journalist Kate Kay on facial recognition and privacy and why that matters to so many people. First up, today's quick six local rundown. Multnomah County has a plan to reopen in just a couple few more weeks. All counties in Oregon have applied to reopen except one, Multnomah County, where I'm sitting right now. It looks like that is about to change. On Wednesday, Multnomah County released plans to apply for reopening. The timeline? Apply to the state June 5th with a tentative opening date of June 12th. Again, June 12th is the tentative date for reopening. That's phase one, of course. The county has met all state requirements except for the number of required contact tracers. The county plans to apply when it has reached half of the required 122 hires. Multnomah County has also added self-imposed requirements focused on addressing the disproportionate impact of the virus on communities of color and on underserved communities. The county will hire contact tracing staff reflective of the demographics of the community, including first language fluency. Also, the county wants sufficient testing sites accessible for underserved communities. The reopening will impact bars and restaurants, gyms, malls, outdoor recreation, salons. We can get our hair done barbershops and other personal services as long as they meet state guidelines. What do you think the lines are going to be at barbershops? Group gatherings will be limited to 25 or fewer. It is estimated that Multnomah County will need 75 to $90 million for response. And two more churches have sued Governor Brown over congregational restrictions. Edgewater Christian Fellowship in Grants Pass and the Church of God of Prophecy in Roseburg on Tuesday filed a federal suit in U.S. District Court in Eugene against Brown, the Oregon Health Authority Director, Oregon State Police Superintendent, and the Josephine and Douglas County Sheriffs. The churches say the state's gathering restrictions put in place due to the pandemic violate their constitutional right, freedom of religion, and assembly. The churches are represented by attorneys from the Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative Christian nonprofit organization. I'm going to find out more about those guys. This suit comes, of course, as the state Supreme Court is preparing to decide whether that Baker County judge's May 18th preliminary injunction, which found the governor's emergency coronavirus order restrictions null and void, should stand or be dismissed. 
According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, since the election of President Trump, the Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF, has become one of the most influential groups in forming the administration's attacks on LGBTQ rights. And in 2016, the Southern Poverty Law Center listed the organization as an anti-LGBTQ hate group. Those lawyers were high profile in their challenge of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. There are also the lawyers in Burwell versus Hobby Lobby ruling that birth control mandate and employee funded health plans were unconstitutional. One of their co-founders is James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family. For context, folks, understand that what these people are probably aiming at is to get to the U.S. Supreme Court. While they might have a hard time before a state Supreme Court where most of the members are appointed by Governor Kate Brown. How might they do in front of the U.S. Supreme Court where the majority of members are appointed by a Bush or Trump? and vetted by the Federal Society. And your daily dose of data. Researchers from Carnegie Mellon University gathered 200 million tweets discussing the coronavirus, and it turns out about 61% of the top 1,000 retweeters are bots. What's a bot? You've heard the word. It's a software program that controls Twitter accounts and automates tweeting and retweeting. It's possible for one person to control thousands of accounts. Bots! And some good news, a third straight day of no reported COVID-19 deaths in Oregon and the number of unexplained deaths in Oregon has fallen back down to average numbers. The numbers of unexplained deaths were up by about 13 percent in March and April. This is the number of deaths not accounted for by COVID-19 or any other reason. The phenomenon was being tracked nationally, with the implication being that for a variety of reasons, more people were dying from COVID-19 than was reflected in the official stats. So maybe the best data news of all has been the stuff that hasn't been the data, which is probably a lot more COVID-19 deaths than we thought. People might assume there are a bunch more COVID-19 related deaths than were confirmed. And now it looks like things are a little bit back to normal. But still, don't go out licking flagpoles, playing sweaty basketball and getting on cruises. We don't have a vaccine. This is not yet the time for mosh pits. It's just nice if we have a few fewer funerals. This is how the Oregon Health Authority put it, and I am quoting, Overall mortality exceeded three- and five-year historical averages by as much as 13% during weeks 12 through 20 of 2020, overlapping with peaks of peak COVID-19 incidents in Oregon. Then, overall weekly mortality roughly equaled historical averages in week 19 and 20 at a time when COVID-19 incidents began to decline. End quote. So does that mean a lot more people were dying when COVID-19 was really active, and a lot less people are dying now that it's calmed down? And you can draw your own conclusions, but I'll draw one. A lot of those people died from COVID-19 and weren't counted. And while in Oregon there is that good news and a little bit more, that we remain the fourth lowest state in the country in terms of confirmed cases per 100,000 residents, the only lower density of cases are Alaska, Montana, and Hawaii. And we should be proud of the social distancing we've engaged in over these weeks. But something as a country we can't be proud of? We have now hit the 100,000 death mark in this country, and those are confirmed cases. That's more confirmed deaths in four months in 11 years of the Vietnam War or 19 years of the Afghanistan invasion. The only events in U.S. history that have caused more deaths in the United States are World War I, World War II, the Civil War, and the Spanish flu. ODOT has presented more details on the I-5 and I-205 tolling projects. The state is moving forward with work and further analysis on implementing tolling on I-5 from southwest Multnomah Boulevard to North Going and Alberta and on I-205 near the Abernathy Bridge. 
Stated goals are to generate some money and manage demand. The tolls would be electronic, would be hung on a gantry above the roadway with the ability to identify the vehicle and collect the appropriate information without the person ever having to stop their vehicle. Toll amounts and time of day they would be enacted have not yet been determined. The revenue generated from tolls would go into a congestion relief fund for roadway projects, including travel lanes, transit improvements in or along the roadway, and bike or pedestrian facilities. According to ODOT, 60% of the money for design has been collected for widening I-205, but no money for construction has been collected. Money would be collected from tolling. And some context, this is about the widening of the freeway project as well around I-5 over to Vancouver and near the Rose Quarter. Public financing played a big role in Portland elections. With the results now, the May 19th primary solidified. Does that seem like kind of a long time ago? It wasn't a long time ago. It just happened. It already seems like it was kind of a long time ago. But it's now become clear that public financing did play a big part of the mayor's race. In 2016, Mayor Ted Wheeler won with 55% of the vote in May and avoided November runoff. This time, he came in just shy of 50% at 49.29%. This is forcing him into a runoff with Sarah Anarone, who came in second with 23.8%. She was the one candidate in the mayor's race to sign up for public financing, which matches contributions of $50 or less by 6 to 1. She received $330,000 in public financing, more than any other candidate in the program, because she received the most small donations. Mayor Wheeler, meanwhile, did not participate in public financing, also didn't hold himself to the voter-approved contribution limits. Ayanarone had over 3,000 donors to her campaign. Wheeler had about 300. Candidates for mayor had to receive at least $5,000 from at least 500 verified Portland residents to qualify for the matching funds. That means Wheeler would have had to get more donors even to qualify. Candidates for city council had to collect at least $2,500 in contributions from at least 250 Portlanders. The impact of public financing on the city council race was different, and a bunch of election watchers have watched those results to suggest that a chunk of those candidates ended up splitting a lot of like-minded voters. Going forward, things will change again. The disparities between publicly funded campaigns and those who raise big money another way probably won't be as significant. Voter-approved campaign contribution limits got upheld by the Oregon Supreme Court shortly before the May 19th primary, and that will be a big topic, not only here, but also in the state capitol next session. In other campaign news, Mingus Maps received a large donation from the Portland Police Union. Why should we care? The contribution was reported May 11th, too late to receive much scrutiny in advance of the primary election. In a town where Democrats overwhelmingly outnumber Republicans and support for police reform is often expected of city candidates. Maps said the contribution spoke to his past work, including as a supervisor for the city's crime prevention program. And I'm quoting, In my experience, the most effective way to build safer, more livable neighborhoods is to bring Portlanders and the public safety community together. As a black man, I understand the skepticism and fear many people have of the police. I am running for office to change that dynamic before my black children grow up to be black men. The support came in the form of a $15,000 donation from the Keep Portland Safe Pack, the political action committee of the Portland Police Union. The Portland City Council has disagreed with the county on a $40 million price tag to house homeless people in hotels. Portland City Council on Tuesday questioned the county's plan to spend that $40 million a year to rent 494 to rent 495 motel rooms to fight the spread of COVID-19 in the homeless community. Commissioner Chloe Udaley balked at the cost, doing some quick math, calculated it would be $6,650 per room per month. Ted Wheeler and Commissioner Joanne Hardesty agreed the cost was too high. Wheeler suggested the money might be spent better on the now-closed Concordia University in Northeast Portland. The plan was presented by Mark Jolin. He's the director of the Joint Office of Homeless Services. Happened on May 25th when they were talking about how to spend the $114 million in emergency federal funds. 
County Chair Deborah Kafori said on Thursday last week the county needs $45 million to begin reopening the economy. She says the county needs the money for contact tracing, virus testing, and additional sheltering capacity. Did not itemize the costs. The county has received $28 million in federal funds and has repeatedly reiterated its need for the city and state to help with the costs of reopening. Some good news in culture. Kickstand Comedy is making lemonade out of a shutdown. The nonprofit theater that took over the Brody Theater. Shout out to Tom Johnson. It's itching to get back to what it does best, making people laugh. They got a PPP loan. They've been able to pay their staff. Last month, they also got a $150,000 community livability grant from Prosper Portland. They were going to use that money to improve seating and lighting, revamp the facade of the building, and finish turning an unused walk-in freezer into a podcast studio. We had talked about that. It was going to be done with us. As they wait for things to ramp up again, Kickstand is hosting a bunch of shows and podcasts online, including comedy workshops, improv classes, and they've been able to bring guest comedians in from around the country. And the Mount Hood National Forest is set to reopen most trailheads Friday. That's tomorrow. After two months of lockdown, we can begin to venture out and take in the beauty of Oregon's tallest mountain. I mean, you can see it from far away, but now you can get up close. Some sites will remain closed, including most campgrounds and areas that are still under seasonal closures. Richard Perriman, the supervisor of the Mount Hood National Forest, said in a news release, we are looking forward to reopening many previously closed areas on the forest while prioritizing the health and safety of the public and employees. We're asking the public to be prepared, be respectful of others, and recreate responsibly. What should you be prepared for? Well, anything, I suppose. You should definitely be respectful of others and recreate responsibly. Don't recreate irresponsibly. If you see somebody getting too close, stay back. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. First up, a focus on Geneva's sheer perfection. A cornerstone of Northeast Portland, a salon, a barbershop, and so much more has recently decided to close. Here are DJ Ambush and Con Jones from partner radio station The Numbers with the news and their reflections. Geneva's Sheer Perfection Barber and Beauty Salon, a Northeast Portland staple for 30 years, has closed amid public safety concerns. The following statements are from Paul Knowles Jr.'s Facebook page. First, let me say there's no conspiracy. This is traumatic to so many and plies on all of our other trauma as people. We'll be okay. Let's slow down for a minute take a deep breath and see John Brown through John Brown's eyes. Let me assure you that this was not an easy decision and it's weighing heavily on the hearts of our family as well as our community. Business decisions are not always easy and take rational, reasonable, and objective thought processes related to the available data. So many variables to consider in a life-changing decision. The process was grueling and heartbreaking. If you make decisions on emotions, chances are they'll go wrong. Even in your personal life, we've all been there. So you have to take a look at reality. The world has changed. COVID-19 is a pandemic and it appears that the poor leadership of the country is not making it a priority to keep 70 to 80% of people that look like us in some areas of the country alive. We have a moral obligation to the village. We have always operated a safe environment for the families and employees in our community. And it's one of the many reasons for our successes in all of our enterprises. It is absolutely impossible from our point of view to operate our business safely. With the threat of this deadly virus ravishing the people we love, it's not an option we were willing to consider. Too many people to track and trace in a business where people are in such close quarters. If you have four barbers who sometimes see over 60 clients a week, that's at least 240 people in the week that could reach a thousand in a month. 
Stop and wrap your head around that for just a second. If you consider those numbers, COVID-19 will inevitably show up at our doorstep. The science is absolute. That's too large of a burden to bear if the worst happens. And stylists and their customers, to that including the children of the next generation, the risk is just not worth it. We will make it through this together if we all stay diligent and protect our loved ones from exposure. We never wanted to cause pain or have our crew suffer disappointment. If you know our family, you know that about us. We love them. They are our family. We watch their babies grow up from the cradle, birthdays, and graduations. They are us and we are them. There's a huge amount of stress and fear in some of the comments that Geneva's will be gentrified. I can assure you that it will never happen. I repeat, that will never happen. It will remain on the same track, just a different train. We love you and thank you for the unending support at this trying time. It's more important to exercise your right to vote now more than ever. Clearly, you can see that leadership matters nationally and more important, locally. The post concludes with local candidates that he's endorsing. I feel like the most assuring part of any of this is that they own the property and they've made a pledge to the community not to sell it. Yes. With this you know, story and me not being a Portland native, mm-hmm. but being a Portland resident, mm-hmm. um, this spot was one of the first locations when I came to town that I learned about. Because hair is important. Right? Of course. Where do of you course. get a line at? <laughs> this is what I was told. And, you know, over the years, been in there multiple times, um, different people I know, you know, going there to get their hair done. And it's always had that vibe of this is black Portland. Right. This is right. the piece. There's other shops around, you know, no, no knock on them, but this meant something and it yeah. felt like Portland. Yeah. So yeah. 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 But like you're you right. Said, like I right. definitely got that same, I definitely got that same vibe, not being from Portland, but you know, been in here like, you know, four years now and it felt good to be able to drive past, uh, Geneva's and just like up and down MLK and being in an area that you're slowly watching. And I know I'm on the tail end of it, mm-hmm. but just watching new construction happen all throughout the neighborhood and Geneva's is still there. And Geneva's has such a familiar look and feel to places that I've used to, you know, seeing in my community, you know, back on the East Coast. So it was, it, you know, it's, it's, I understand how everybody's feeling, you know, it's definitely a, a Portland staple and, uh, you know, I wish them the best with whatever they plan on doing with the property and how they plan on coming back when all this is over. Right. I do want to point out something that uh, Paul Noss Jr. said in this statement. Mm-hmm. The science is absolute. Mm. And it just is. I mean, if we just look at this, if we try to strip away any of the complexity and misunderstandings and whatever else is being thrown out there and just treat this as something that you can catch like a cold. Mm. Cool. There's no safe way to operate a business like this if what we're trying to prevent is the spread of infection. Now, people want to have debates about how dangerous the virus is. Okay, later for that, if we're just trying to make sure it's not being spread, then yeah, everybody got to stay home. We can't we can't be doing anything like this. So this was an extremely responsible and loving decision. Uh, you know, uh, that they made sacrifice that they made for the community. And I hope everybody looks at it that way. And whenever they, you know, come back and decide to do whatever they're going to do, I, I hope the community rallies around them and supports that next effort. 
X-Ray reporter Kate Kay joins me to discuss Amazon's worker safety efforts and a City of Portland facial recognition ordinance. Why does this matter to you? What does Amazon have to do with both? Here's Kate and more. Let's see, where to start? Where where have you been focusing your research lately? Uh, I have a couple recent stories I've done regarding Amazon in relation to Portland that I think uh, listeners would be very interested in. Um, so one is, uh, and actually I have links to both stories, um, both Amazon stories on my Twitter, which is Kate at Kate K reports, K-A-Y-E. So Kate K-A-Y-E reports. Um, so anyway, uh, I did a piece for One Zero, which is a science and tech publication about Amazon uh, lobbying against Portland's proposed facial recognition ban. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of, I see it as an important thing. Um, so there have been several bans of facial recognition technologies throughout the country in other cities. And Portland, um, over the past several months, has been um, doing a lot of due diligence and discussion around getting their own, you know, our own ban against uh, this technology. Here, um, it's still in the works, despite being some some time delay um, as a result of the pandemic. But um, you know, if people aren't um, familiar with what facial recognition is, it's you know, it really famously used throughout parts of China for security purposes, for surveilling um, populations there. Um, There are a lot of civil rights and privacy concerns around facial recognition. um, Several studies have shown that it does not work um, accurately, especially with people of color. So if somebody's face is black or brown, um, it's likely not to work nearly as well as it might on a white face, for example. Um, there's, so there's a lot of concern around this stuff, and um, it's actually used in places in Portland today. Um, if anybody ever goes to a Jackson's convenience store, there's three locations here on the east side in, in Portland that actually uh, use facial recognition overnight to block the entrance um, and you have to actually look at a camera and it will give you, it'll open the door for you if you're, you know, if you're not somebody that they, it's, it's a long story, but basically they're yeah. using it to prevent um, alleged criminals from entering. And if people want more information about that, I could certainly give them that. But um so anyway, so Amazon is lobbying against the ban, and um, th- this potential, this proposed ban here, could uh, be pretty groundbreaking for the country because it would not only limit use of facial recognition by government agencies, by police, it would also restrict um, use by by private entities. So businesses like those Jackson's convenience stores they wouldn't be allowed to use that technology anymore. Um, So Amazon actually paid two lobbyists to go to City Hall and talk to uh, council staff and the mayor's office late last year. Um, They spent $12,000, city records show, um, 
And uh, I have a pretty detailed story uh, on the publication One Zero. It's spelled out One Zero um, about that. And at the same time that Amazon was lobbying here, um, right after that, uh, in January, a, a, a closely connected organization based in Washington, D.C., ran in, uh, an op-ed in the Oregonian opposing the facial recognition ban. And it turns out this organization, they're called the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, ITIF. They have a slew of uh, big tech company lobbyists on their board, including the top lobbyist of Amazon. Hmm. So there's some interesting connections there. And, um, you know, these are the things that happen behind the scenes that have some influence on our government. And it's something to be aware of. And this facial recognition ban is still in the works, like I said. I think at this point they're looking like they're looking at a vote probably in July. So it's been a long time coming. What's what's Amazon's play here? Why are they supporting facial recognition? They're not supporting it. They're lobbying against it. Didn't didn't I thought I made that clear? Sorry. Oh, okay. Well, the the um, the city is trying to ban facial recognition. Why are right? they? Oh, they're okay. Yes. Why are they supporting the technology? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So well, because number one, they make it. Ah. They actually yeah. have facial recognition technology. It's actually called recognition, spelled with a K instead of a C. And um, their technology, actually, the ACLU did a study of their algorithm that and showed that it was inaccurate on, um, uh, especially in uh, for people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so they have a stake here, and. You know, I mean, because they make it, there's also, they have other types of technology. Um, Ring uh, Ring is a mm-hmm. um, connected doorbell system that does not employ facial recognition today, but it's the sort of thing that might down the road. And um, Amazon makes, you know, they make a lot of technologies that could work in tandem with facial recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so they, they have a stake in that, in the, um, the facial recognition business, definitely. Mm-hmm. And your piece this week, which we, which was on the local yesterday, and we we played on air as well, talks about a new role for corporations. When we think about public health, we don't always think about corporations and what you just said that that uh, relationship between our health and our ability to work. Tell us about the piece you did this week. Yeah, well, you know, after I t- after I talk to people in that Amazon facility. And reading more and more about, especially the use of these thermal cameras, but also just testing or whatever, you know, temperature taking, whatever it might be in the workplace, I was thinking a lot about what are the implications. And I knew that one person in particular would have a lot to say. Her name's Mary Gray. She wrote a book called Ghost Work. Mm -hmm. Uh, It came out last year, and it focuses on the invisible you know, often ignored workforce, the uh, the human labor behind um, big tech, behind uh, companies like Amazon and like Uber and Google, Um, whether they're behind a computer, um, you know, censoring or, you know, monitoring content or or maybe they're in an Amazon facility shipping out goods. 
um, they're kind of forgotten. So anyway, she is um, not only an author, she's a researcher at Microsoft, and she is um, a long-time a- time academic and anthropologist who thinks a lot about the, um, you know, the, the connections between technology and labor issues. So I knew she'd be a great person, and so I um, put together a little story for X-Ray that is, um, you know, kind of just highlights some of the things, the thoughts that she's having about what are the implications, and, um, you know, really she does talk a lot about those those issues, the the um, the fact that our work is so connected to our healthcare, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and like you said. We don't always think about public health in relation to work, but the reality is the fact that if any of us have health insurance, it's because of our work. Yeah. Um, it's not, and, and um, you know, corporations like Amazon or GM or these others, FedEx, I think is using these thermal cameras. There's all sorts of companies that are using them now. If they're doing this health monitoring more and more, they do not have any state or federal mandate to provide treatment medical treatment, any kind of thing after that. Mm-hmm. As far as they're concerned, they don't want a sick body in their workplace. Um, that's their concern here. That is their liability. And so we have to really think about what does that mean if they're the ones who are taking over for monitoring health, if they're controlling more and more of that. Um, what what are the next steps? Right. Because you know, it's like there's there's so many negative implications for for certain people who might not have that um, healthcare insurance or the ability to be treated. If you know, and maybe they just lose their job. So there's um, a lot of of issues there. And yeah, and the the story with Mary Gray um, delves into that a little. Fantastic, Kate. Where can fi- where can folks find this work? Well, um, if they go to Twitter and go to at Kate, K-A-T-E-K, K-A-Y-E, reports, at Kate K reports, they will find um, links to these stories. And uh, they can also find my stuff at redtailmedia.org. That's my tech ethics uh, website. And and then here and there on the x-ray blog, I'm doing some stuff. And uh more and more um, audio stories for X-Ray. So, you know, I'd love to hear from people if they're interested in, in any of this and they have anything to say, please get in touch. Excellent. Kate, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for this great work. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Again, that's Kate Kay. You can find more on Kate's work at redtailmedia.org or on her Twitter at Kate Kay. That's K-A-Y-E reports. Thanks to DJ Ambush, Khan, and Kate for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Apparently, I should have been saying this for the last several weeks. Please subscribe to the podcast. Okay, there I did it. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please encourage others to subscribe to the podcast. I've asked to rate and review it. Please do that as well. But also, I should be asking, please subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown. And if you have a story idea, send us an email at local at xray.fm. We can be together while we're apart. We'll talk to you tomorrow. We'll be back with Alex Zielinski from the Portland Mercury and our interview with Oregon senior U.S. Senator Ron Wyden. In the meantime, stay safe, stay connected, and thank you, democracy. X-Ray.